News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Two years ago, Gabriel Wortman killed 22 people in Nova Scotia and injured three others. We still have questions like why did it take police more than 12 hours to alert the public that there was an active shooter in their small community? That's just one of the reasons for a public inquiry that is going on right now. But that inquiry is also facing a lot of backlash. To talk more about what is going on, we are joined now by Ed Ratushny, who's a professor emeritus in the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa and has studied public inquiries actually right across Canada. Ed, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. What do you find unique about this particular public inquiry? Well, uh, the commissioners are saying that they cannot call some of the most important police witnesses or they can't allow them to be cross-examined. They say that their mandate says they have to have a a trauma-informed approach. But that destroys the fundamental purpose of a public inquiry when you can't question the most important witnesses. Right. So I don't understand that. So they're saying that we have to be mindful of people's trauma, but then what is the point of having the public inquiry if you can't ask some questions? Absolutely. And it also ignores the trauma of the family of all those people who've been murdered. That Those families have been waiting for two years to find out what exactly happened and how it happened and so on. And uh, they're not getting that. Yeah, what do you think, Ed, about the process so far and about what you've heard so far? Well, it seems to me that this uh, attempt to somehow say that we it's, uh, police officers can't handle uh, questioning in a courtroom, I mean, that's their whole career. That's what they're trained to do. And, you know, uh, one of the police officers, uh, uh, Officer Rehill said he'd been off work for 16 months after the tragedy and that he's still struggling with questions about the decisions he made. You know, it could be very therapeutic for those officers to testify and to be cross-examined about their horrible experience. And, and uh, you know, it just makes some common sense that this is, has to be done for the public. And if they could make this contribution, it might just help them. You talk about like a public inquiry as being therapeutic. Is that is that what we do with public inquiries, Ed? Is that why we have them? Absolutely. Justice Corey in the Supreme Court of Canada said that public inquiries are uh, established so that the public and everyone involved with the most horrible experiences, and he was talking about coal mine explosions in Nova Scotia many decades ago. But in the Supreme Court, he said that's why they're done, because the people don't trust the ordinary uh, institutions of government to come clean with exactly what happened and why it happened. And that's why commissioners are supposed to be independent and trusted by the public to get to the bottom of every detail of these things. Right, like those precedents that you just mentioned right there would seem to set the stage for this situation being a a perfect one for having a public inquiry, wouldn't it? Absolutely, Simi. You hit the nail on the head on that for sure. So what has gone wrong here, in your opinion? Well, I I think that uh, it's a three-person commission, and uh, it's... uh, sort of somehow got itself wrapped up in this idea that uh, they're not going to be, they're going to be delicate. I don't know, maybe they're thinking that somehow they can get everyone to agree and join hands and and everything's going to be beautiful, but it doesn't work that way. Let me read you just a very short passage. When former Chief Justice Antonio Lemaire was a commissioner looking into an innocent innocent people being convicted by police officers in Newfoundland. He said in his final report, this is what he said, I'm just three sentences. The good news for the public of Newfoundland and Labrador is that many individual police officers approach this inquiry in an honest and professional manner. Many have gained a great deal of insight and wisdom from this tragedy. 
mistakes have been acknowledged, and there is a strong motivation to establish and maintain a police force whose standard is excellence. The police there were, during the inquiry, they said, oh, I feel so badly, but we weren't properly trained. We didn't have uh, the right education to deal with this and this and so on. And they let it all hang out. They were honest, complete, and no one punished them for that. They were praised for that. I wonder if things change. I mean, we've had a public inquiry out here as well, you know, in the last 15 years, the the whole Robert Jakansky situation. And that did result in some police kind of paying the price for that, for, you know, perjury and so forth. Did that perhaps change things? Did the Braidwood inquiry out here, Ed, do you think change things? Well, I think it does because uh, it exposes uh, the conduct of uh, of the people involved. Uh, a public inquiry is not like a criminal trial where uh, misconduct is to be punished. It's done for the purpose of the public, public confidence in our institutions and finding out what happened, why it happened, and what steps are taken to make sure it doesn't happen again. Is this inquiry set up, do you think, to give the, the community and the, and the families of the victims here what, what they need at this point? Absolutely. They could just uh, say we're going to cross, allow cross-examination by uh, the parties to this, by lawyers for the families. The commission says it's going to ask all of the questions. They can still ask questions, but they have to tell us what the questions they want to ask, and we'll ask the questions. Well, they're not going to cross-examine because it would be a conflict of interest. The commission has to be impartial, and a cross-examination takes the position of an adversary, someone who's opposed in terms of certain issues, and is asking questions as to why their view is incorrect or why it is correct. And so the commission can't really take on that role. Are you still watching carefully to see how this unfolds? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, I, I feel so sad for the families who've waited this for so long and are just going through a terrible time. And, you know, I think that the police officers also, if if they had to, I think they would, in the end, realize the importance of their testimony and why the public needs them to testify and to answer questions. I think that's very true. Ed, thank you for your time on this. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. That's Ed Ratishny, who's a professor emeritus in the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa. He has studied public inquiries right across the country, and he's been following closely at the Nova Scotia public inquiry going on right now into the mass shooting that happened two years ago, killed 22 people. But the reason for the public inquiry is people want to know, the community wants to know, victims' families want to know. What took the police so long to tell the public there was an active shooter? More than 12 hours elapsed before they alerted the public to really fully what was going on there. And it's kind of similar to what you see happening in Uvalde, Texas now, where people are questioning what took the police so long to go in there and confront the shooter. 78 minutes elapsed before that happened. So in Canada, this is our way of dealing with those situations like that. And there is frustration that all of the questions are not being answered. This is an opportunity to get the answers to those questions. And we'll continue to follow that story. This is Mornings with Simi. To refrigerate or not refrigerate? That is the question, and we're hoping Raji Sohal has the answer. Good morning, Raji. (laughs) Good morning, Simi. Okay, I love this one. So Heinz Ketchup is claiming that one in five Canadians is against refrigerating ketchup. So now they're offering a solution Mm. uh, to quell the debate and quell the controversy, and that is that they're going to have a branded Heinz cold ketchup available in supermarkets what? for anyone no. who has to really have it stamped out for them. But this sounds like a marketing ploy, first of all, because like who doesn't Clearly. refrigerate their ketchup? Of course you refrigerate ah. your ketchup. It says right on the bottle, refrigerate after opening. 
No, no, no. What it says is best if served at room temperature. But doesn't it say refrigerate after opening? Probably, but come on, let's go with mine because it's more dicey. Oh, no, no. I'm I'm like <laughs> 95% certain that if somebody is at home right after, now, maybe they can go check for me and check your bottle of ketchup in the fridge and then email me and tell me. I'm pretty sure it says on there refrigerate after opening. So refrigerate after opening is best, is different than best if refrigerated or best if served at room temperature. But I don't like the the wishy-washiness of it. I don't even want best or like or recommended on there. I want to see whether it's forbidden to do something, whether it's verboten to do something. Because actually, if you have ketchup at a diner or a restaurant, Simi, the bottle's just sitting there on the table all day long. I guess right? so. Now you have yeah. a good point, I would imagine. Yes. And okay. I, lo- I love French fries. I love yam fries. But I'll also have ketchup with my samosa or my pakora. I've got to have ketchup with that, yeah. So good. And I like that that difference in the temperature of the product. You know, I like to have something hot with something very cold. So I am down with refrigerating. But there's some other controversial categories. Like? like for example, peanut butter. I don't refrigerate peanut butter. Okay, but of so course, I, I buy. I don't buy natural peanut butter because my family refuses to eat it. So I do have some natural <laughs> peanut butter. <laughs> However, they won't eat that. I keep that small jar in the refrigerator. The regular, like just you know, grocery store peanut butter, the old fashioned stuff. They love that. So I keep that. You got to have that in in the counter, like are on in the cupboard. Okay, I so I have that for baking if I'm going to make peanut butter cookies, which I love. Uh, so I'll keep that in the pantry. But uh, the daily use peanut butter, it's in the refrigerator, and it is so much work, and it is very unfun to stir exactly. it all up in the morning and put it on toast. It like tears up the toast. <laughs> but another one, see me, that people are split on is maple syrup. What maple do you do syrup with yours? goes in the fridge. Of course, it goes in the fridge. Okay, well, it took me a good 30 years to learn that because I was always putting my maple syrup in the pantry thinking on someone's advice at some point that I encountered that it had enough of a sugar content that if you use it relatively quickly, like within a couple of weeks, that it's totally fine to go in the pantry. Until one day I found, I I guess it was bloom in the maple syrup and I had to toss this like, you know, maple syrup's so expensive. It's like throwing out liquid gold. And so now I always refrigerate it. Yeah, that I knew. However, I'm going with my ketchup in the refrigerator and John, shout out to John, thank you, who said, Simi, ketchup says refrigerate after opening. So there, there you go. it goes in the refrigerator. There you go. <laughs> Thank but you. There'll that. still be some people who want it room temp. Who puts it out on the? I'm I'm at a loss on this one, Raji. Thank you. We'll catch up to you. We'll catch up to you a little bit later. That's <laughs> our Raji Sohal with the great debate on ketchup on the counter or in the fridge. Simi at cknw.com. This is mornings with Simi. But more people than ever are relying on food banks just to put some food on the table. There's been so much pressure on budgets and groceries and food prices from all sorts of different reasons, let alone the pandemic and floods and fires and you name it. And now, of course, inflation. But you know what? Food banks are being squeezed, too, and they need some help. Now, they have gotten some, so we thought, let's find out more about that. Dan Huang-Taylor joins us now, the executive director of Food Banks BC. Dan, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me on today, Cindy. Now, Dan, tell me, how much pressure is there on food banks right now? How much is your service in need? We're seeing numbers increasing across the province. Um, the, uh, the, the, what you listed uh, in that introduction, the, uh, the, the, obviously, we're in the thro- we were in the throes of the pandemic still uh, in a, pretty in, to an intense degree last, uh, last summer, but then the fires um, created... Uh, really significant levels of need, and that was further compounded by the floods. Uh, we saw communities completely cut off. And then there was the supply chain issues that really impacted people throughout the province. So that, with the rising inflation and general living expenses, it's just making it so much harder for many British Columbians who are already struggling to make ends meet. And so have you seen demand increase? How much more demand would you say is there on food banks in B.C.? But we're seeing numbers increasing across the province. Um, for instance, one of our members, the Greater Vancouver Food Bank, recently reported seeing up to three times the number of 
new or returning clients registering over the past couple of months. And this is reflected in other communities across BC. So, I mean, we're essentially breaking records that we really do not want to see broken. Okay, that must be a lot of strain. Are donations keeping up with that? Well, I have heard reports that donations have been, um, have, have, we have seen a bit of a reduction. Uh, obviously, we rely heavily on the support of the public and uh, they're feeling the pinch too. Uh, we are very fortunate to have a lot of extremely generous donor partners uh, from the corporate sector and uh, and also from the, the province of British Columbia in support of some of the work that we do. Uh, but there, there are concerns that uh, those those donations will continue to wane in, 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 in some of our food banks. So tell me about how the province is supporting you. I understand that they're helping you out to, to try some, some more innovation. Well, certainly um, with regards to the work that we, we were doing last year, and that was essentially supporting emergency food access needs. Um, moving food out throughout the province, um, we've been working alongside uh, communities in the Lytton region um, because a lot of people remained during during the fires and a lot of people are returning home as well. Uh, and so we were supporting by getting food um, shipped and then when the, the floods hit, we were flying the food in um, with an amazing organisation called Helicopters Without Borders. Um, and um, the, the province has... Um, is looking to further support that work through uh, some funding we received that will allow us to support in times of emergency. And that's fires, floods. It could be, we don't know what the, the future is bringing. Uh, there's still a lot of uncertainty. Uh, and we're still recovering through this pandemic. The financial ramifications of this uh, will be felt for years. So um, so this support is, is, is very welcome and very much appreciated. Right. So how much are they giving? We received $825,000 for two years uh, for emergency food access support. Okay, so that will really help communities like, would you say, Lytton in a situation like that? Well, that's where we've been directing uh, funding and, and supports to, to, uh, to that particular community. But we, we don't know what the, the potential but probably likely um, emergency weather situations will bring this year. Um, obviously, November's floods were, were unprecedented, but we're seeing an increase in the severity of these weather events uh, with climate change um, taking us to new extreme levels all the time. So, so yes, this, this money will go an extremely long way in, in supporting this critical and urgent need that many people uh, will, will, will continue to, to face. Well, it's good to know that you'll be there. Dan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me on today. That's Dan Huang Taylor, Executive Director of Food Banks BC, talking about some of the help the province is providing for emergency food support relief. But you know what? For the everyday food support relief out there, they could certainly use your help if you're able to do that. You can check them out at foodbanksbc.com, and that is the provincial association for more than 100 different uh, food banks and hunger relief agencies throughout the province. This is Mornings with Simi. There have been lots of concerns in recent days about flooding, particularly in the northern part of our province. There was some heavy rain in the forecast. We've got those cooler temperatures that we've been having. It means that we still have quite a bit of the snowpack left, so you can see why there would be so much concern. Are communities ready, though, for that? Well, they've certainly been getting lots of warnings. Joining us now is Jennifer Rice, Parliamentary Secretary for Emergency Preparedness. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. What kind of concerns do we have right now for flooding in different parts of our province? Well, actually, so as of this morning, we're in uh, pretty good shape. We don't have the same concerns we did on Friday um, in the Peace region, but um, we still need communities to be prepared because we have quite a bit of the snowpack uh, still left in the mountains, as you um, imagined, or as you just mentioned. And if our biggest concern would be if we had a heat dome like we did in June of last year and all that snow melted in a rapid, um, in a rapid way where then we would see flooding. We have cooler temperatures right now. And so ideally, if, if things gradually warmed up and we slowly had a melting of the snowpack, that would be the ideal situation. Right. So even though we're not necessarily happy about the weather right now, is it ideal yeah. for kind of a slow, gradual melt? 
Well, I think we could see it, you know, ideally, if I could be the weatherman and just wave my wand, I think we would see it a little bit warmer so that we would have some warming uh, up um, with the cooler temperatures. It's still basically holding the snowpack. So we do want the snowpack to, to release. Uh, it's not happening, happening as, um, as normally as it would or like compared to previous years. So we would want to see some melting. Hmm. Okay. So then are there areas of the province where we are kind of just keeping a close eye on this developing situation? Yeah, we're, we're actually keeping an eye on um, all over the province. And we've been working with um, local governments and First Nations governments to, to be prepared to have plans in place. And we have, um, we have stockpiled sandbags. We've got nearly 30 kilometers of tiger dams and 15 kilometers of gabion baskets. And we have these um, strategically situated across the province, ready to to deploy to any community. Is there something uh, different this year then, Jennifer, about the situation? Is it the cooler temperatures? Is that kind of unique this year? Um, I don't know. That's That's a great question for someone, you know, one of the amazing experts we have at the River Forecast Center. Um, I don't, I can't really speak to that right. intelligently or definitively. It seems to me, though, like cooler temperatures in the spring, like we had such a, a high snowpack this year. I'm guessing like gradual mm-hmm. is the way we want to go with this. Exactly. That's exactly how we want to go. Right. Have we changed our procedures then in light of all the flooding that we had kind of last year? Are we just are we just more hyper aware, do you think, of the possibility of flooding right now? Perhaps. And I think that's a great thing. Um, one of the, the one of the things we want people to do is to actually have a grab and go bag ready on the go, especially for flood prone, flood prone uh, communities. So we're encouraging Uh, people to have a bag basically with a few days of um, clothing, of any medication, um, you know, mementos that are really critical to you. Right. Have a plan. Have a plan. Yeah. Okay. So if people need more information then about the situation, is there somewhere they can go and check out what is happening? Yeah. So they can go to preparedbc.ca. It's a website. It can help you prepare for any type of emergency, not just flooding, can tell you how to make a grab and go bag, um, everything you would you would need to know, and yeah, for other communities where we are seeing a little bit of uh, pooling, water pooling on the roads, you know, not exactly flooding. Um, check the Drive BC website. That's good advice, Jennifer. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me. That's Jennifer Rice, Parliamentary Secretary for Emergency Preparedness, talking about efforts around the province to make sure that uh, we don't have a lot of flooding problems, although, you know, lots of areas are on high alert, given that, yes, we still have high snowpack levels for this time of year, and weather has not been ideal to kind of gradually melt those, that we still have pretty high level levels. So there's still lots of areas where they're on alert, essentially. This is Mornings with Simi. We have talked a lot recently about the problems in our healthcare system, whether it's not being able to get a family doctor to functional emergency room closures because of staffing shortages. We are hearing it all. In fact, you've probably been hearing about the news over the weekend. This was the situation that we heard about. The 12-hour closure started at 9 a.m. Sunday, and so far there have been five this month. In the event of an emergency, people are being advised to go to Royal Inland Hospital in Kamloops, more than an hour drive away. A staffing shortage is to blame for closures at Clearwater. It's a similar story in other areas of the province. Port McNeil Hospital on Vancouver Island had a temporary emergency department closure over the weekend. Clearwater does have some rental suites specifically available for temporary doctors and nurses. And the district is looking at buying housing to make it easier for healthcare workers to come here. All right, that's Grace Key from Global News reporting there. So what is happening with these shortages, in some cases nursing shortages? Joining us now is Adrian Gear, Vice President of the BC Nurses Union. Adrian, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Good morning. What is happening in some of these areas? Like what has helped, what has gotten us to this kind of tipping point, it seems like? 
Well, I mean, we've certainly been, uh, you know, there's been forecasting for years that we would find ourselves in this situation, um, that there, you know, would be a nursing shortage, not only in our province, uh, but nationally and internationally. Uh, I think that um, the pandemic it certainly didn't cause the shortage, but it has certainly exacerbated the situation. Uh, nurses who perhaps were willing to work a few more years, they're at retirement age, are now saying just can't do it anymore, and so they're leaving. And we're also seeing, uh, which is really sad, many of our new grads uh, entering the workforce and then deciding this this isn't for them, this is, is not the profession that they, they signed up for, they're not able to meet their professional standards and provide the care that uh, patients need. And so, um, yeah, there's, there's a mul- multiple factors that are impacting this. Okay, because like I know that in you know, years past there was the concern that we need to graduate more nurses, and we certainly are doing that. So, are you saying that some of them, like how many of them, are deciding that they don't want to do this? Well, I mean that's a great question. There's there's actually not a lot of transparency around that data. Um, we're we're hearing from members directly, and and that they're they're either leaving the profession altogether, or they're perhaps instead of taking um, a, a permanent uh, full time line, they're working very few casual hours and actually seeking employment in in other areas. And uh, I've even heard examples of of young nurses saying they prefer to go back to to serving in restaurants and things like that because. Because um, it was it was safer. They weren't exposed to aggression and violence, and they actually found that environment uh, much more respectful. And so um, there's there's lots of different things. Some some young nurses are going on to further um, further their education, going into academia, which is great. Like you know that's 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 an amazing opportunity. But the reality reality is uh, a lot of new grads are just saying that they, they're not able to stay and provide um, that sort of direct care. And so that's, that's a problem. But we would, we'd be very interested in um, have, having access to that data. I'm wondering as well, Adrian, then what is happening in these small communities like Clearwater, like Port McNeil? What is going on at those hospitals that they're having to close? Are, are nurses just not willing to go there? Yeah, so I think there's been a reliance on nurses that are picking up extra shifts and, and driving to these smaller communities to provide that coverage when needed. Uh, but, you know, it's just, it's become too much for people. You can't work a full-time job, uh, have all the pressures of life. Uh, this has been going on for, you know, the last couple of years and, and then, and continue to do that. Like nurses need a break. Uh, so I think that's problematic. I know uh, the example of Port McNeil, uh, speaking with nurses that had historically gone to support that area, um, they're having issues with the health authority even being compensated properly. Um, they're promised um, access to, to clean and safe accommodation if they go up there. Uh, that's not the case. So I, I think people are just feeling like enough's enough and the the nursing workforce cannot shoulder this burden uh any any longer uh, is what we're seeing okay so what is the solution here you said so promises are being made and they're not being kept if you want to lure you know people up to these smaller communities yeah well i think if you're telling a nurse that if they they drive up to work in an, in a smaller community and you're going to provide them uh safe and clean uh, accommodation you should do that <laughs> so just like like ensure that that happens um pay people what you've committed to i mean nurses under our collective agreement um are entitled to overtime and you know what have you for picking up extra shifts um nurses are having to then go back and like have arguments about their paychecks like people are just like enough, we're, we're, nurses are doing this to help out. Um, but if, if they can't be treated sort of like with respect, they're, they're not going to do it any longer. And really, uh, again, I want to emphasize, people are just tired. They need a break. Um, all through the pandemic, nurses have had their vacation postponed or, or canceled, missing out on, um, you know, milestone moments with, with families. And people need time to recover from all of this. And uh, nurses and other healthcare professionals just have not had that opportunity. So I feel like people just, they just need some time. Right. Yeah, well, Adrian Thilson, thank you very much for joining us because this explains a lot about what has been happening. So thanks for your time.
Thank you very much for having me. That's Adrian Gear, who's Vice President of the BC Nurses Union, talking about some of these ER closures we've been hearing about in these hospitals and smaller communities. And actually, she does help paint the picture of what is going on there. And yes, health authorities need to do a better job. If, if part of these problems are just dissatisfaction with the work conditions, well, that's something that they can fix, right? If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it's been big news in the last 24 hours, and this is the new proposed handgun bill that was tabled by the Trudeau government late yesterday. It's a big one. It makes a national freeze on importing, buying, or selling handguns. That's a central feature of this. It doesn't ban handguns outright, but it allows current owners to continue to possess and use them. But what they're looking to do is kind of cap the number in the country. Along with that, the bill would allow for the automatic removal of gun licenses from people who commit domestic violence or have engaged in criminal harassment, such as stalking. So there's a lot to this bill, but the central question remains, will this help? Will this help with gun violence in this country? Will this help us get control? Is this something that law enforcement wants to see, and do they think it will improve the situation? Well, joining us now is Doug Spencer, who's a former Vancouver Police Department officer with more than 30 years experience in policing and Doug thanks for being back with us you're welcome so what do you think about this Doug is this going to help um I was actually shocked and saw some good things in it uh stiffer sentencing for the importing and smuggling guns and selling guns uh that's long overdue uh, because the gangsters in Vancouver, they use smuggled guns. They do not use legal guns. Um, you know, I, over the years, I've seized hundreds and hundreds of guns, and none were ever legally right. registered. Yeah. Well, sir, we're just having a hard time hearing you. So um, I wanted to ask you that part again, though. You're saying there were some good things in here that you saw. Yeah, no, I saw the uh, the... Extra sentencing, longer sentences for the importation and smuggling of guns and selling of guns, which is a, a really positive thing. But it, it, they're still not really addressing the issue of the gangsters that use them. When they use guns, they should stay in jail. It's like simple stuff, right? If you did that, there'd be nobody out there running around with guns. Right. So is this a step in that direction? Yes, a, a couple of the things are certainly positive. Okay, um, what don't you like? Well, you know, again, they're limiting the the handguns from people that are law-abiding citizens, right? They're, again, going after gun owners who take them to ranges or, you know, shoot, sport shooting and stuff. Those aren't the people that we should be after. We should be after the gang members and the people using the guns illegally. Okay. Criminally, right? So how do we do that then? Like clearly they don't want any more guns in this Canada. They want to make sure that fewer guns arrive in Canada, especially from the United States. So how, how do they do that? Yeah, no, they, like I say, they, they've touched on it with some of this stuff limiting the number of guns coming into Canada. We yeah, we need no more guns. Even legal hunters aren't allowed to hand guns out in the bush, right? So there's already really strict laws about owning handguns and stuff. When I retired, I went to get my hunting license to go hunting with my boys, and uh, I had to jump through a lot of hoops. The, the gun laws in Canada are as good or better than any other country in the world. Right, so where are we falling short then? Because clearly people feel there's still a problem. Yeah, I think, you know, they they got rid of the mandatory minimums. There used to be really good legislation where if you use the firearm during the committing the criminal offense, you get an extra four years on top of your sentence, your substantive sentence. So that was good legislation, and they took it away for whatever reason. I just don't understand that move, right? So, yeah, they have to get legislation in there that's going to deal with these guys. Right, so and, you feel and, it's more of a sentencing issue at the other end of it as opposed to a prevention issue at the beginning of it. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, you know, I've had cases where 
high school kids from Vancouver are running across the border in Abbotsford smuggling handguns, right? That that's how they get guns. They they don't they can't go to gun stores and get guns. They have no PAL license. So um, it, you got to deal with the people who are actually using them, right? And keep them off the street. Does this give? Does the potential of this legislation give police better tools? Yeah, my understanding. I, I haven't read the whole thing because it's pretty uh, lengthy. But um, there is they're giving them some more tools to deal with those guys that are bringing the guns and smuggling the guns and selling them, which is much needed. But it, you know, you don't stop. Like, keep giving the police all the powers they need to deal with these guys who are actually using them. Okay, so you're saying this is this should be just a first step. Yeah, no, they, they should keep in the same direction, for sure. You know, the, the red flag stuff, already I, I've arrested people for domestic violence and stuff, and right, you already have the powers to go and take their guns away, but to actually take their license away, you know, there's another step. So they're heading in the right direction. They just have to uh, keep after the the people using them. Right. Now, you know, Doug, the thing is, like, when it comes to shotguns and rifles, like hunting equipment, I understand that, right? I grew up in a hunting family, so um, I've been comfortable with that my whole life. But when it comes to handguns, though, Doug, who really needs a handgun? Well, you know, sports shooters go out to clubs out in the valley and stuff, and it's a recreation, right? And you have to legally store these things in locked gun safes and keep the ammo away from the guns. All those steps are in place. So the thing is, those guns aren't the ones being used, right? Those are law-abiding people. They're not the people going around shooting people in the street. So they are in the right direction going after the smugglers and the people who sell guns. Right. So you're saying just go more in that direction. Yeah, no, for sure. It's pretty tough dealing with that with the neighbors to the south, right? Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah, grannies in Florida can get licenses to carry handguns in their purses and stuff. Like, everybody's got a gun down there. That's We don't want to go anywhere near that stuff, right? Because, you know, in my uh, past, I, I know gangsters that were killed with their own gun. They go and get in a fight at a bar downtown in Vancouver, and they, they lose their gun, and they get shot to death with a the gun they brought to the fight. Right. Okay, so when you just I think you kind of hit the nail on the head, though, when you're saying our problem, and, and I know the Prime Minister mentioned this yesterday, too, is we have a neighbor to the south where we can't even compete when it comes to the number of guns, and they are flowing into this country. Oh, yeah, in, in abundance. The, the gangsters can get as many guns as they want. I've done search warrants where I get 30 or 40 guns from a, a gangster who's already prohibited from having weapons. Right. They, they get guns. If they want them, they're going to get them. Okay. So, like I said, you've got to deal with them for possessing, criminals possessing them and using them. Those are the people that you got to go after. And then you'll see the amount of shootings go down. When they're in jail, they can't shoot anybody. All right, Doug, listen, thanks very much for your time this morning. You're more than welcome. Take Doug, care. Doug Spencer, former Vancouver Police Department officer with more than 30 years experience, talking about the federal government's announcement on trying to essentially cut back on the number of handguns in this country. They're not outlawing them completely, but they're making the possession of them a lot more difficult, essentially. It's a national handgun freeze. There's a whole bunch of regulations, and as Doug pointed out, there are some measures in there to deal with the smuggling of guns, too, but he said that's what we need to focus on. This is Mornings with Simi. We're going to be chatting with our Raji Sohal right now about inflation, as a matter of fact, because things seem pricey already. And you know what? They could just get pricier. Also, big interest rate hike that we are also bracing ourselves for. That's coming tomorrow. Talk more about all this. Raji is with us. Hi, Raji. 
Hi, Simi. Yeah, Statistics Canada gave us some numbers the other day on just how much Canadians have been spending. And it's more or less the same when it comes to retail. Sales at motor vehicle and parts dealers fell a little bit, or you could say a good amount, uh, by 6.4%. But there were higher sales of, maybe this is unsurprising, I know you like to garden, uh, higher sales yes. of garden equipment and supplies along with building material. Benjamin writes is, is a BMO economist and microstrategist. And he said that you can see now that with inflation, there's a little bit of an expectation that there's going to be a shift for consumers from buying goods to buying services. Inflation is a growing problem. And I think we're going to see the, the, the real impact of that starting in the second quarter. And, and that might, that, that likely will dampen uh, spending activity uh, as, as, as things generally will cost more through the course of the quarter. Uh, and then that's probably going to weigh on activity and growth in general. We only just have the March data and and uh, prices really only started to pick up materially and, and kind of March, April, May, things have really accelerated here. Gas prices have gone substantially higher. Um, what it means is, is more money allocated to things like gas and groceries and, and less money allocated to uh, leisure activities, going to a baseball game, going to the movies, uh, getting getting a new iPad or other electronic devices, stuff like that. Uh, and so you, you're going to see uh, spending growth. And the number of dollars getting spent is going to be relatively steady or growing at a decent pace. But uh, people are, are not going to be buying necessarily as much stuff uh, because more money will be going to gas groceries. How much of what we're seeing with Canadian spending has to do with coming out of the pandemic versus this rising inflation we're seeing? Uh, still, there, there is still some some pent-up demand. And so people, I mean... For the past couple of years, it's been very difficult to travel. Uh, it's been very difficult to, to go out and, and see friends and, and do a lot of recreational activities. And so there's still plenty of pent-up demand to do that. I know I'm, I'm looking forward to traveling more often if I can. Uh, and, and, and so I think that there's still that, that that's out there and we'll see uh, ongoing increases in spending there. But the, even there, prices have gone up and, and uh, you, you need fuel for airplanes and uh, you still still got to go eat wherever you wherever you go. And so prices of, of most everything have gone up. And so it, it definitely makes uh, it more challenging to do those recreational activities generally. And so uh, it, 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 it will be, I think, a challenge for, for consumers generally at, through at least the rest of this year. And then, uh, I mean, as long as energy prices stay where they are. Yeah, and Simi, energy prices are likely to stay roughly where they are for the, the at least a short term. We don't know how long term that's going to be. I do notice that myself with just, uh, of course, working in the news and being so in touch with what's going on with prices and, and inflation, I've been noticing that I've been curbing some of my own habits too. Uh, I, I'm not buying stuff right now either. And I and I asked the strategist, uh, the economist with BMO, if we have reached peak inflation yet. Firstly, we, we have yet to see the peak in inflation, so we're going to get the next inflation data uh, in a few weeks, and, and it is going to almost certainly go higher. Gasoline prices were up double digits in the month of, of May, and uh, if, if, if the recent move in oil prices is any indication, they'll probably be up more in June. Uh, and, and so we, we haven't yet seen peak inflation in Canada yet. Uh, and, and again, it is going to be a, a very big challenge for consumers and for the economy in general. Oh, that's a little bit disheartening to hear that, though, Raji, because I think we're all worried about the impact that that inflation is having on our wallets. Absolutely. And the primary impact of the expected interest rate hike that we're going to get this week, maybe tomorrow, uh, is just uh, that if you are looking to buy a house, that's going to hit you hard. If you are buying a house, mortgage rates have, have already gone up and, and uh, variable rates, variable boring rates of all kinds are going to go higher as, as these uh, interest rates go up and as the Bank of Canada pushes rates higher. Uh, but uh, we've already seen a lot of the uh, kind of longer term mortgage rates increase substantially. We've already seen five-year rates increase a lot. And so you're already seeing that impact on the housing market. And that, that's probably first and foremost where you'll see it is on the housing market and, and the slowdown there, which has really already started. Uh, and beyond that, it, it really does depend on individual circumstances. And some some folks will be in a variable mortgage, and that 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 those rates might push higher; those, those uh, costs might push higher. Uh, others less so, uh, but it does mean generally borrowing costs higher for the whole economy, and that over time does tend to slow things down. Yeah, I would imagine there's a lot of people who are either considering or actively working on kind of locking in their mortgage right now. Yeah, for sure. And we are hearing some analysts are saying expect real estate to fall by a lot. 
But what I've seen in in growing up in BC is that uh, we don't ever really see housing, right. you know, dramatically fall. Um, I was reading an article that said, you know, expect it to fall double digits or we'll be shocked. But the one thing that's a mainstay in Vancouver and Metro Vancouver news is that uh, we're shocked at how much real estate costs, no matter what's going on in the markets. It's true. It just seems like the market here has more resiliency in it. Like we we think it's going to go down. And even let's let's be clear, a 20% drop in other markets would be huge. A 20% drop here would still be an incredibly expensive proposition for a lot of people. Yeah, and not everyone is making as much more money to keep up with inflation, to keep up with uh, rising interest rates. These things go up, but uh, how much people earn and how much makes it into their wallet every two weeks uh, doesn't seem to climb at the same rate. No, it does not. All right, Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. That's our Raji Sohal there talking about inflation, the impact it is having out there, people's buying habits. Now, all of this is going to be discussed a lot over the next couple of days because we are hearing again that the Bank of Canada tomorrow will take that benchmark interest rate and hike it high again, possibly 50 basis points. And that is pretty much what they did a month ago. They're expected to do the same. And we'll see what kind of an impact that has, particularly on the housing market, on your mortgage. If you bought in the last five years, you probably have a variable rate mortgage. And I do wonder if people are starting to race to lock that in. You know what? If you have a story to tell, please tell us. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Now you've heard the news, BC Ferries planning to make a few changes, actually. They'll be expanding their coastal cafe menu to include, yes, alcoholic beverages. But there are some rules around this, so we thought let's make sure we explain that completely to people. Joining us now is Astrid Chang, who's a manager of strategy and community engagement at BC Ferries. Astrid, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Simi. So let's lay this out first of all, Astrid. What are the rules going to be around alcohol on BC Ferries? Well, I can confirm that this is uh, something that has been in the works for a little while. We had a trial in the Pacific Buffet that started in October 2019, and it was successful for us. Uh, What we did there is we offered beer and wine to our customers who were in the buffet there. That trial had no issues, and so following that, we applied for licenses to sell alcoholic beverages in the coastal cafes on board our vessels that sail the three major routes connecting Metro Vancouver and Vancouver Island. And this is just another way that we believe we can enhance and add value to our customers' experience. So we're not quite ready to launch just yet. This is going to start to roll out towards the end of summer, but there will be um, a limit to the alcoholic beverages people can enjoy. It's a two-drink maximum for customers 19 years of age or older. And just like in the Pacific Buffet, the alcoholic beverages must be purchased with a meal. So that's a condition of our license and something that people will uh, expect to see when we roll this out towards the end of summer. Right, because I think people are concerned about, okay, like obviously we have to limit this because of the concerns over that, but how, what is enforcement going to be like? Like, how do you make sure people are following the rules? Yeah, we are going to certainly have uh, a real emphasis on our staff training and we are going to be responsible hosts. So part of that will include the Serving It Right certification. Anyone who's going to be involved in service will be trained up to be a responsible host. But like other restaurants in British Columbia, we will also expect our customers to act responsibly as well. So we'll be monitoring and uh, enforcing the two drink maximum and we expect people who are purchasing those alcoholic beverages to follow that as well. And uh, really important to remember that, you know, when we're traveling, not everybody is a driver. So we are just acting like another restaurant in British Columbia. Okay, so how popular was the pilot project? I know that you tried it out, as you were saying, but what were sales like? Well, I don't have the exact numbers, but we do know from customer feedback that it was uh, a successful 
full introduction of wine and beer service in the Pacific Buffet. Uh, That trial was between October 2019 and March 2020. We had no issues and customer research and customer feedback uh, shows us that our customers are interested in having alcoholic beverages uh, available as an option to them when they're dining with us, uh, even outside of the Pacific Buffet. Okay, so is any part of this then, Astrid, also uh, a bit of a trial here? Will you see if you can expand it even more, or is this pretty much what it's going to be? Well, right now what we're doing is we're focusing on the three main routes that go between uh, Metro Vancouver and Vancouver Island. So that's the Tawasson Swartz Bay route, Tawasson Duke Point, and Horseshoe Bay Departure Bay route. Those vessels that sail those three major routes uh, will have the Coastal Cafe uh, menu expanded. So we'll see how it goes. Uh, we're going to start with the Tawasson Swartz Bay route in the uh, end of summer. That's our target. And then following the, the uh, about a few weeks later or so, uh, we'll, we'll roll that out to the other two routes that go between Nanaimo and the, and the mainland. Okay, so people can't get on the ferries like this weekend and think this is going to happen. No, you know, we're not starting this right away. What we wanted to do is let everyone know that this is coming because it does take time to prepare to launch these new menu offerings. In the coming weeks and months, we're going to be going through inspections, employee training and procurement. Uh, Customers may see these activities on board our vessels. So we wanted to let everyone know this is coming. And we do look forward to sharing more details with our customers when we're ready to launch. Again, starting towards the end of summer and rolling through into the fall. All right, Astrid, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's Astrid Chang, Manager of Strategy and Community Engagement at BC Ferries, talking about their decision to expand some of the alcohol offerings that they have on board, certain sailings, as you heard her describe there. Uh, So it's a two-drink limit. Also, you absolutely must purchase a meal to go along with that. You can't just get on board and have a beer and a glass of wine. But I'm wondering how you feel about that. So we've been asking that question this morning. Is that okay with you? Or do you think, oh, this is a bit of a slippery slope? Well, let's see. I've got lots of comments on this. Like Phil wrote me to say, if people want to drink on the ferry, they will. Either way, pretty easy to pour a drink from your truck, your you know your camper, your trunk, your carry-on, what have you. So they may as well sell it on board to make it more enjoyable for travelers, says Phil. Doesn't mean that people are drinking and driving. There's lots of walk-on or travel in groups. Phil, you make some very reasonable and good points. Thank you very much for that. Rob also says the same thing. Rob said, you know, most people go out for lunch and dinner where alcohol is served. If they're driving, they might have a wine or beer, maybe nothing. They are responsible. The ferries are no different, says Rob. I will not have a drink, he says, but I see nothing wrong with them serving alcohol. And if this helps to keep rates down, count me in. Aha, Rob. There, you hit, uh, you hit a good point there. Are they going to generate revenue from this? Now, we asked Astrid about the money. She said they haven't kept track of that yet, but they do know from customer feedback that it's been popular. So the money is something that, yes, we will definitely keep an eye on there. So you tell me, are you okay with that? Let's see. Dustin wrote me to say, I think beer and wine sales on BC Ferries is a solution to a problem that nobody really has. Dustin said, I did twice weekly round trips to Victoria for work for years, right up until covid I always had the Pacific Buffet for dinner on the way home. And he said they had a separate kiosk set up in the buffet for alcohol sales. It was a cumbersome second purchase in the already prepaid area if you wanted anything. And he said in countless visits to the buffet, I only saw people buy a couple of times. There was a lot of curiosity, he said, especially from international travels. They often approached. They had a lot of questions about drinking and driving, but very few purchases. So interesting to note then. So maybe this little expansion will help boost some of the alcohol sales too. Dustin, if you're going to be riding the ferries again, let me know how that goes.